Scheritzma. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and to the episode that defeated the pie lady. But first, let's honor Norman Lloyd, who died in his sleep on May 11th at the age of 106. Born Norman Perlmutter on November 8th, 1914, Norman had a remarkable career in the theater, movies, and television as an actor, a producer, and a director. He became an acting apprentice in Eva Legallien's Civic Repertory Theater in New York in 1932, when he was 17 years old. And his last film role was in Trainwreck in 2015, when he was 100 years old. In between, he was with the Federal Theater Project and Orson Welles and John Hausman's Mercury Theater, and as Wikipedia says, he appeared in over 60 films and television shows, with his roles including Boda Link in Charlie Chaplin's Limelight, Mr. Nolan in Dead Poets Society, and Mr. Letterblair in The Age of Innocence. And in the 1980s, he gained a new generation of fans for playing Dr. Daniel Auslander, one of the starring roles on the medical drama St. Elsewhere. And then, of course, there's his association with Alfred Hitchcock. He first appeared as the Nazi agent Frank Fry, the man who falls off the Statue of Liberty, in Hitchcock's 1942 film Saboteur. Hitchcock later cast him again in 1945 in Spellbound. And he appeared as an actor in four episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, as well as providing the narration for the episode The Day of the Bullet, which he also directed. In fact, he directed 19 total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, including one of the most acclaimed episodes of the hour-long series, The Jar. And yet, in spite of all that, his most important association with the show is as associate producer. He held that position for 184 episodes, beginning in season three, and later became producer and executive producer for the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He also served as assistant to the producer for the television series Suspicion, executive produced by Alfred Hitchcock, and executive producer for Joan Harrison's Journey to the Unknown. In his later years, he was an invaluable source of information and anecdotes about Alfred Hitchcock and the Hitchcock television programs. Not many people make it to the age of 106, so his death is not tragic, but it is sad for we Hitchcock fans. For any show that premiered over 65 years ago, there aren't many people left who are associated with it in any capacity. Norman Lloyd was a huge part of the program, and while I honor his remarkable life, I mourn his passing. Let's return to the pie lady who said in her review of this episode, I'm going to be honest with you here, friends. There is only one more actually decent episode left in season one, and it's not this episode, or the next one, or the one after that, or the one after that. It's the one after that one, the penultimate episode of the season. Then the season ends with another boring episode. This might not be true. I've never actually watched the entire episode because it's too boring. That's not very promising. There are, after all, seven episodes left in this season. But let's forget about that for now. What about this episode? Well, the pie lady says, 
I've tried to do a decent job on this one, but I just can't. I cannot. It's not happening. It's not a bad episode, but it's disturbing and also slow. That's not the best combination, is it? It's almost as bad as depressing and expensive. It's not particularly moving, the way Never Again was moving. It's not even really suspenseful. Even the very boring Triggers and Leash had more suspense. It's not as boring as Safe Conduct, which is an episode I forgot existed until I was scrolling through the links just now. That's how boring it is. She goes on, but ultimately she gives the episode the grade of I can't. And she doesn't review another episode until Wet Saturday, episode one of season two. Okay, so we know what the pie lady thinks of this episode. What about our other all-star reviewer, Jack Seabrook? Well, among many other things, Jack says about this episode, and I quote, I thought the episode was a mess. So that's two strikes against it. Are they right? Is the episode really that bad? As William Shatner says on his show, The Unexplained. Well, that is what we'll try and find out. As we open, Hitch is looking at a poster nailed up on a tree that is protected by a tree guard. The poster says Wanted on the top, and it has two mugshot photos of Hitch. In the one on the left, he's facing the camera. In the one on the right, his back is to the camera, so all we see is the back of his head. Good evening. Uh, Perhaps I should explain this. My wife had these posters printed up as a joke. Of course, she doesn't really want me. Anyway, there isn't a chance I'll be recognized. They're passport photographs. This one is for going abroad. He points at the photo that has him facing the camera. And this one for coming back. He points at the photo of the back of his head. My excuse for making these undignified remarks is that tonight's story, The Belfry, concerns a wanted man. In fact, an entire town is looking for him. Such popularity must be deserved. And in this case, it is. But I shall allow you to learn the details on your own. First, however, I want you to hear this description of a much-wanted product. Listen closely. It may be in your neighborhood store. If it is, apprehend it at once. The reward is high. So here's The Belfry. First broadcast on May 13th, 1956. Starring Jack Mullaney and Pat Hitchcock. Teleplay by Robert C. Dennis. Based on a story by Alan Vaughn Elston and directed by Herschel Doherty. We have encountered four of those five people before. This is Jack Mullaney's second appearance. We last saw him in episode 30, Never Again. He has two more episodes coming up. His next is Decoy, episode 37. This is Pat Hitchcock's third appearance after Into Thin Air and The Older Sister. She has seven more episodes. Her next is I Killed the Count, episode 25 of season two. And Pat Hitchcock is, at the time of this recording, 92 years old. 
We've already seen eight previous teleplays by Robert C. Dennis. Don't Come Back Alive, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Older Sister, The Derelicts, Place of Shadows, Help Wanted, and The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. He has 30 episodes in all. His next is Crack of Doom, Episode 9 of Season 2. Alan Vaughn Elston only has two episodes based on his stories. This is the second. His first was Episode 3, Triggers in Leash. I said a little bit about him back then. Here's a little more from the online archive of California. Alan Vaughn Elston was born on July 28, 1887, in Kansas City, Missouri. Elston studied engineering at the University of Missouri, where he earned a civil engineering Bachelor of Science degree in 1909. After college, he worked as a transit man for railroads in the West and Midwest, a resident engineer, a cattle rancher, and a consulting engineer. He began work as a freelance writer of Western fiction and mystery stories in 1924. He became well-known for his Western novels and was a member of the Western Writers of America. Elston's publications include Come Out and Fight, 1941, Roundup on the Picket Wire, 1952, Long Lope to Lander, 1954, Showdown, 1956, and Saddle Up for Steamboat, 1973. He passed away on October 21, 1976, in Santa Ana, California. Our director, Herschel Doherty, started his career in Hollywood as a dialogue director from 1943 to 1955. During that time, he worked on the films Passage to Marseille, Mildred Pierce, Night and Day, Humoresque, Life with Father, The Woman in White, On Moonlight Bay, How to Marry a Millionaire, and Demetrius and the Gladiators, among others. During that time, he was also an actor in almost entirely uncredited roles. He appears in White Heat, The Story of Seabiscuit, Young Man with a Horn, Tea for Two, and Lullaby of Broadway. He started directing in 1952, and almost all of his work is in television. He directed 36 episodes of General Electric Theater, which earned him two Emmy nominations and a Directors Guild of America award. He directed 17 episodes of Wagon Train, 16 of Thriller, 19 of Dr. Kildare, and 11 of Bonanza. He directed two episodes of Suspicion, The Way Up to Heaven, and The Last Town Car. He directed two episodes of Star Trek The Original Series, Operation Annihilate, and The Savage Curtain. And he directed two episodes of The Time Tunnel, Kill 2 by 2 and Town of Terror. In the early 70s, he directed every episode of The Smith Family, a short-lived series starring Henry Fonda and Ron Howard. Here's Ron Howard speaking about that. Yeah, um, when I was a senior in high school, I had, I had done two years on a TV show called The Smith Family with Henry Fonda and Janet Blair and Darlene Carr. And it and, uh, wasn't a very good show, but it was a great learning experience for me. Uh, the... Um, uh, 
that Herschel Doherty directed every episode, and he was a fantastic um, television director. I mean, pretty good with the actors, but but man, he knew all all the tricks of staging scenes, being efficient, getting things done. You know, he was a remarkable technician in addition to his creative talents. Here's a quick rundown of some of the other shows on which he directed. Crusader, State Trooper, Studio 57, Buckskin, Cimarron City, The Joseph Cotton Show, Laramie, The Magical World of Disney, The Virginian, Mr. Novak, Rawhide, The Man from UNCLE, The Girl from UNCLE, The Wackiest Ship in the Army, T.H.E. Cat, Mission Impossible, The Rat Patrol, It Takes a Thief, Hawaii Five-O, Gunsmoke, The FBI, Here Come the Brides, The High Chaparral, Bracken's World, Emergency, Marcus Welby, M.D., Heck Ramsey, Circle of Fear, Cannon, Banachek, Apple's Way, Paper Moon, The Six Million Dollar Man, Petrocelli, and Policewoman. And after Policewoman, he retired in 1975. This is the first of 24 Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three Alfred Hitchcock Hours that he will direct. His next is The Creeper, episode 38. And Herschel Doherty died in 1993 at the age of 82. What better way to start an episode entitled The Belfry than with a shot of the belfry with the bell ringing? As the bell rings, the camera pans down to the entrance to the Clark County School, just as the kids are running out. There's a sign next to the door that says Sunday services, prayer meetings. So we know that this school doubles as the church. We're in a very rural, relatively poor part of the country. I'm sure everyone's heard it by now, Albert. Oops, sorry, Miss Ellie. I'll stop now. Actually, the Albert ringing the bell is one of the school children, and when the school teacher, Miss Ellie, who is played by Pat Hitchcock, dismisses him, he runs out of the building without closing the door. Once Albert leaves, a shadow, the full shadow of a man, is cast onto that door, giving us a very ominous introduction to Clint Ringle. When Clint enters the schoolhouse, he doesn't look very threatening. He's played by Jack Mullaney. And Jack was always a fairly innocuous presence in his performances. But this time, he has a hatchet in his hand. He approaches Miss Ellie while her back is turned. But when she turns to see him, she's not frightened. She seems rather happy to see him. At least until she finds out that he is laboring under a misunderstanding. I was kind of hoping we could walk over and have a look at the house. Oh, I'm sorry, Clint. I... Well, you ain't seen it lately. I'm just about ready to put the roof on it. It'll be all finished by summer vacation. That's fine. You must be anxious to get moved in. It's gonna be real nice, Ellie. Three rooms, and we can add more to them if we need them. We? You and me. We can get married as soon as school's out. You mustn't talk that way, Clint. I like you a lot, and I surely appreciate you asking me, but I can't accept. 
You can't change your mind now. Calling your mind, Clint. Just because I let you walk me home from school a couple of times didn't mean anything. You got the wrong idea. Why, well, I'm sorry. You, you, don't, you don't understand, Ellie. I'm building a house for you if you just come and look at it. That wouldn't hardly be proper since I just got engaged. Walt Norton gave me last night. We aim to get married soon, school's out. You can't marry nobody else, Ellie. I ain't gonna stand for it, you hear me? I hear you, Clint Ringo. All these months I've been calling for you, building a house and waiting for school to let out. I didn't make you any promises. You never give me a chance to ask you. You had, I'd have said no. I'm marrying Walt Norton, that's the end of it. No, no it ain't. Yes. Clint grabs Ellie and she pulls away, leaving her wrap in his hands. Just then, Walt Norton comes walking around the corner of the schoolhouse and she runs into his arms. And then really fast, very early in our episode, tragedy strikes. Howdy, Clint. What did you hear about me and Ella? Uh, I was just telling it. It don't make no difference what she says. She ain't marrying nobody unless it's me. You, you just give back the ring, Ella, because you ain't marrying him. Well, give it back, you hear me? What's the matter with you? Clint makes another grab for Ellie. Walt defends her. And then, as Albert puts it, Clint Ringo hit Walt Norton with an axe! It's all done very bloodlessly. In fact, we get a close-up of Clint as he swings the axe. We don't see Walt in the shot at all. We don't see the axe strike Walt. We don't see Walt fall. Because Walt Norton is a minor character in this story. You could even say he's a device. And like it or not, we're stuck with the main character of this story, the murderer, Clint Ringel. Now, since we've dispensed with Walt so quickly, let's take a quick look at the actor who played him. He's John Compton, and this is supposed to be his second appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But as I said of him in my review of The Case of Mr. Pelham, while we're at it, let's finish up with the actors by mentioning that according to IMDb and the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, John Compton plays a character named Vincent. This is a character I cannot find. Also, according to IMDb, he appears next in episode 33, The Belfry. So maybe we'll actually find him in that episode, which we did. So let's give him his due here. He was born John Compton Tolly. And his father, Lem Tolly, was a master distiller for Jack Daniels. He, in fact, is the great-great-nephew of the actual Jack Daniel. His acting career spanned from 1945 to 1963. And during that time, he was in films such as Mildred Pierce, The Glass Menagerie, and The Ten Commandments. He also was the star of the television series The DA's Man. Here he is promoting his sponsor at the beginning of one of those episodes. My name's Shannon, DA's man. My cigarette's Chesterfield King. Nothing satisfies like the big clean taste of top tobacco in Chesterfield King. Following his acting career, he began a successful career in the 1960s as a real estate developer in the Hollywood Hills and the Laurel Canyon area. And he died in 2015 at the age of 91. This is his last, perhaps his only, 
Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. Now, after Clint strikes and Ellie screams, she backs up against the schoolhouse and faints dead away. Clint walks up and looks down at her. Now, in the story, which we'll get to a little bit later, he intends to kill Ellie, too, because she's a witness. But is that what's going on here? It's unclear, but I don't think so. Albert, however, is sitting on a swing, witnessing all of it, and he does think so. Don't you touch it, Clint Ringle! Clint may not be planning to harm Ellie, but he certainly seems to be planning to harm Albert. He starts to run after him, and Albert runs away. And with Albert broadcasting... Clint Ringle hit Walt Martin with an axe! Clint runs off in the other direction. I like the way Clint stands near the swing that Albert was on so that we can see the swing just briefly each time it enters its arc. It's still swinging from where Albert was. After Clint runs away, he heads to the obvious place, the house that he's building. He falls down in the dirt and it starts to rain. And this is where we get the start of Clint's internal monologue. I'm not thrilled by this aspect of the episode. But since the intention of the episode is for us to get inside Clint's head, just as we're inside Clint's head throughout the entire short story, and since Clint is on his own for most of this episode, I'm not sure how else you do it. I fixed him. Fixed that Walt Morton good. He had it coming. He shouldn't try to take Ellie away from me. He ain't gonna marry nobody now. But don't you worry, Ellie. It's going to be all right. We'll go someplace else and build another house. Just like this one. So Clint still thinks he's going to marry Ellie, just in a different town where they don't know that he murdered somebody, which probably means that he had no intention of hurting her after she fainted, at least not yet. What follows is what I think is a very disturbing little scene. Clint enters the house, but as you'll recall... I'm just about ready to put the roof on it. It has no roof. So the rain pours down on him as he gives a little guided tour in his internal monologue to where the kitchen was going to be, where the parlor was going to be, where the bedroom was going to be, with the fantasies he has associated with each room. And as he looks around, the rain pours down on him, drenching him. Then he hears the barking of the hounds that are tracking him for the posse, and he runs off into the night. As he runs off, the shot fades to black, so we also run off into the night. We dissolve to a very dark scene, briefly illuminated by lightning, as we see Clint is now in the woods. He is followed hard upon by the posse and their dogs. They provide their own light sources. They're all carrying lanterns. Oh, my lanterns run out of oil. Mine too. Just wait till I get a hand on him. That's all I ask. Well, when we do, we'll turn him over to the sheriff. We ain't going to have no lynching. Well, the sheriff ought to be here then. Ah, uh, he'll come along. The townsperson, played by Ralph Moody, we'll get to these actors a little bit later, sets his lantern down on the ground, and we get another wonderful shot, this time with the lantern in the foreground on the right, illuminating the scene on the left, where we see Clint's head peeking out. He's hiding in some brush, lying down on the ground. Even as we're looking at Clint right next to that lantern, we hear the posse talk about how they think that Clint is already far away from there. The group defers to Walt's cousin Elmer, who is played by Norman Levitt. 
Maybe we better go back to the school and get organized. Somebody shine a light over here. My lanterns went out. And we return to that same shot of Clint's head peeking out with the lantern next to him. Only now the lantern is out. So if someone shined their light to find that lantern, they would probably find Clint. Do we want them to find Clint? It's a good question. We know from many stories where the protagonist is an antagonist that we will often root for him even as we're rooting against him. And that's what starts happening here. We don't really want Clint to be caught, but we don't want Clint to do any further damage either. Anyway, it all becomes moot at this moment because Ralph Moody finds his lantern without them shining a light on it, and the posse walks away. We go back to Clint as he pokes his head out and lightning flashes, illuminating him. If the lightning had flashed while the men were there, just seconds before, it might have been a whole different story. Which brings us back to that annoying but necessary internal monologue. Oh, I fooled them. I should thought I was a goner. Gotta hole up someplace. Just for a couple days. They'll get tired. And then Ellie and me will go away. Where, where are you taking a look? I know a place. Right near Ellie. <laughs> Maybe that piece of the internal monologue wasn't so necessary after all, except it does send a chill up your spine when he says he knows a place right near Ellie. And so we watch him, protected by the dark, as he climbs up on the roof of the schoolhouse and climbs inside the belfry. In doing so, he nudges the bell, so it gives just the slightest of a ring. That little ding right there in the midst of our usual, oh no, he didn't sting, which we also heard earlier on, the sting, not the ding, when Clint killed Walt. Climbing into the belfry, Clint steadies the bell with his hands. He takes his jacket off and wedges it up into the bell to prevent the clapper from ringing. It's a pretty bold plan, especially when you consider that we just heard the men say that they were going to meet at the schoolhouse. Clint must have heard that too. And sure enough, they're down there, and the sheriff has arrived. There's a square hole from the belfry down into the schoolhouse where the rope to ring the bell hangs down. Clint looks down, and we get this great angle shot of the tops of the heads of the sheriff and the other men who are right below. We even see the coffee in their coffee mugs as we're looking directly down at them. And now that we've seen things from Clint's point of view, we jump down and join the men in the schoolhouse. Howdy, Sheriff. Hello, Elmer. Well, Sheriff, what do you think? Well, the way I see it, there's only two directions he can go, over the ridge or west of the state line. Might try the North Fork. Wouldn't ever make it. All this rain? Why, she's swole up till the banks won't hold her. <laughs> oh, Elmer, do you want to take your boys and work over the ridge? Sure do. Well, the rest of them can come with me. But bound to flush him out in the morning. Well, whoever finds him, come back here and ring the bell. That'll draw everybody in. All right. Well, let's get moving. Remember that when we get to the end of the episode. Whoever finds him needs to ring the bell to bring the others in. And as the sheriff says that, he puts his hands on the rope as if he's going to ring the bell right then and there to demonstrate. And we switch back up to the belfry to see Clint put his hands up inside the bell preparing to remove his jacket from the bell in case the sheriff does ring it. So Clint has to be careful here. 
He has to make sure that he doesn't ring the bell accidentally, and he has to make sure that the bell rings if someone pulls the rope down below. But by the time Clint puts his hands inside the bell, the sheriff has let go of the rope. We once again see the men, from Clint's perspective, through that square hole, the tops of their heads, as they start to move out. And then we see them from a different Clint perspective, as he peeks over the belfry, and the camera shows us what he sees, the men outside of the schoolhouse, heading off to their various assignments. The camera moves in on a close-up of Clint as he starts to suck his thumb. We'll get to that a little bit later. Right now, seeing as the sheriff has arrived, let's look at him and the men. You probably recognize the sheriff's voice. He's Dabs Greer, and we saw him once before in episode 25, There Was an Old Woman, when he played Theodore the Milkman. This is his second and unfortunately last episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. As I said before, Norman Levitt plays Walt's cousin, Elmer. He was born in Lansing, Michigan. Fandango.com says, In films from 1941, American character actor Norman Levitt spent much of his career in uncredited bits and supporting roles. Levitt can briefly be seen in such A pictures of the 1940s and 1950s as the Inspector General and Harvey, his larger roles include Folsom in the 1960 budget western Young Jesse James. Three Stooges fans will immediately recognize Norman from the Three Stooges in Orbit, in which he played scientist Emil Sitka's sinister butler, who turned out to be a spy from Mars. IMDb gives him 233 credits of different shows. He's in lots of westerns, but also lots of comedies. He's in two thriller episodes, The Hollow Watcher, and Knock 312. He melds the anthology series with the Western in the Twilight Zone episode Mr. Garrity and the Graves, in which he plays the sheriff. You're, uh, you're Mr. Garrity? That's my family name. Is that your wagon outside? Yep, that's my wagon. Says Garrity on it? That's my family name. Well, Mr. Jensen here says that you bring back the dead. Now, that's what you might call a figure of speech, ain't it? Uh, you don't actually bring back the dead? On the contrary. That's exactly what I do. Bring back the dead. And he again melds Rod Serling with the Western by appearing in the Rod Serling Western series, The Loner, in the episode A Little Stroll to the End of the Line. Oh, preacher. That is my calling. I must have took a little sleep. So it appears, Abner. So it appears, induced by a bottle of my bourbon. Now, I suppose I can learn to live with the fact that you're a sot, Abner. But even a drunken lobo would have sense enough to water the bottle or throw it away. Why weren't you where you were supposed to be? Why weren't you watching for him? Preacher, I swear to you... Don't swear anything to me. Why weren't you watching for him like you were told to? The tent could have burned down. I could have had a bullet between my eyes for all of you. Preacher, I was watching. I... All right, Abner, my boy. Now I'm going to teach you a little lesson. Preacher, don't! You may recognize the other voice in that scene as Robert Emhart, whom we last saw in episode four, Don't Come Back Alive. Norman's last credited appearance on IMDb is as a gravedigger in Quincy M.E., and among all his credits in shows such as The Wild Wild West, The Big Valley, Lost in Space, Bonanza, The Man from UNCLE, The Virginian, Mayberry RFD, Longstreet, and Petticoat Junction, the one that intrigues me more than any other 
is playing a Russian seaman on McHale's Navy Joins the Air Force. He's in four total Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three Alfred Hitchcock Hours. His next is John Brown's Body, episode 14 of season two. And Norman Levitt died in 2005 at the age of 92. As I said, Ralph Moody plays the fellow whose lantern went out. He was born in St. Louis, Missouri, where he performed singing tenor at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. But prior to that, his first acting role was in 1900 in a staged version of Rip Van Winkle. For about 20 years, he had his own acting troupe in stock theater. But that came to a sudden end in 1939, when four tornadoes wrecked a number of his tents. So he moved from the acting circuit to full-time radio work, first on WIBW in Topeka, Kansas, as Uncle Abner. He later moved on to Cincinnati, where he performed on the radio station WLW. This is from the May 20th, 1942 Cincinnati Inquirer, a column by Inquirer radio editor Bob Bentley called Lend Me Your Ears. Moody is heard each Sunday morning in Sunday Breakfast at Uncle Ralph's. He is the writer, producer, and principal character of the program, and he receives a large amount of fan mail. Recently, he realized one of his greatest ambitions, to receive mail from every state in the Union. He answers the letters personally. He is co MC with Toby Tuttle in the On With The Show program on Saturday afternoons over WLW and is heard in many character parts of which he is a master. So that when you hear radio shows produced in Cincinnati, Moody may be the law officer and the lawbreaker in the same play. Here is another Cincinnati Inquirer article, this time from May 8, 1962, Luke Feck on TV. The advent of medical shows have made life much easier for character actors. Ralph Moody, one-time WLW staff actor and announcer, and now a 60-ish leading character actor in Hollywood, was describing the technique the other day at lunch. I spent three days dying, three fine days in bed dying on Ben Casey. In between scenes, when they checked the lighting, they asked me if I wanted a sit-in. Only now they call it a lay-in. I didn't move. I had a pack of cigarettes and a crossword book on the stand. Easy living. If the sentences sound clipped and terse, it's because of Mr. Moody's schooling. At one time, he was Mr. Dragnet himself. I appeared in 22 Dragnet episodes. Once I was a dog poisoner, and all the kids on the block hated me for weeks, he said. When he first went to Hollywood, he found himself typed. I was an Indian chief for two solid years. I made about five pictures with Audie Murphy, all as an Indian. And in fact, in his three appearances on the Lone Ranger television show, he was Chief Swift Eagle, Chief White Eagle, and Chief Red Hawk. But he's also in plenty of other television shows where he doesn't play a Native American. He's in episodes of Perry Mason, He's in the thriller episode, The Lethal Ladies. He's in episodes of The Man from Uncle and Get Smart. And he's in the Night Gallery episode, The Little Black Bag. But to those of us with the anthology bent, he may be most recognizable in the Twilight Zone episode, The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. I'm real concerned. I just don't like the way he's behaved the last two weeks. What do you mean? He's different. Not like he was at all. Seems the same to me. He only ate two eggs again. 
Well, ever since he sprouted teeth, he's been having three eggs at breakfast. Well, a man's taste can change. And he goes around fiddling with things night and day. And the way he goes at that hard work. Why, he was never that friendly with work before. Yes, sir, that's true at that. I recollect worrying many times that he leaned just a shade towards this side of shiftlessness. Not lazy, exactly, but... No, no, just uninterested. And since his sickness, he's been fighting in that work just like he was a year behind. No, it ain't like him at that. All right, big ears. Now you run down to the mailbox, wait for the mailman. I'm expecting a new catalog. Sure hope it gets here. You've about wore that one out. And to those of us of the Hitchcock bent, he may be recognizable from his small scene in Strangers on a Train. Take your ride, take your flight, take a trip with London City. Step right up, come on, fly. Nice business he's doing over there since the murder. People want to see the scene of the crime. Quiet, 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 come closer. Here we are. I don't think that's a very nice way to make money. Well, heck, boat keepers got to eat too, ain't they? Business fell off something terrible for a while. That smoocher wouldn't go near the place. I'm afraid I don't know what a smoocher is. Okay, so I ain't educated. He's also in the Lux Radio Theater version of that film, which aired on December 3rd, 1951. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Ralph Moody died in 1971 at the age of 84. The only other actor listed amongst the villagers is Horst Earhart. He's also the only other villager who has lines. He's the one who says, Just wait till I get a hand on him, that's all I ask. And we'll soon come to a scene where he says, She'll be back on the job tomorrow. She's going to need that $60 a month more than ever now. Horst later took the stage name Ross Evans, and he had a number of credits in 1950s television, but there's a big gap in his IMDb listings between 1962 and 1980. And it appears that he was on stage a lot, and he also was a chemist. This is his only appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and here is some of his obituary from Legacy.com. Horst A. Earhart, actor and chemist, passed away Monday, April 15, 2013, at the age of 89. He was born in Hoboken, New Jersey, on August 12, 1923, to German immigrants George and Anna. Raised on the East Coast and the Midwest, he is best known as a character actor and dialectician, working under his own name and the stage names Josh Franklin and Ross Evans. He was a veteran of stage, screen, and television in a career spanning 60 years in plays from Shakespeare to Noel Coward to the touring company of Peter Ustinov. He was a founder of Theater 40 in Los Angeles, appeared in video games, taught dialects to other actors, continued performing in Hopkinton Community Theater into his 80s, and delighted in entertaining those around him. On television, he appeared in series, including Have Gun Will Travel, Navy Log, and the Schlitz Playhouse during the 1950s, and The Twilight Zone, the episode Grace Note. Hi, Baba. There she is now, my best girl. Huh? <clears throat> Moonlighting and Seinfeld in the 80s and 90s. Screen credits included The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, The Competition, and even Teenagers from Outer Space. Uh, that's Professor Simpson's office, the third door down. Uh, he's head of the science department. 
As a chemist, he formulated products for Rachel Perry, Vivian Woodard, and the HRX product lines in what seems to be mostly cosmetics and perfumes. He was also a successful salesman, sales manager for Rory Bertrand DuPont and a talented cook. It's later, and we're still in that belfry with Clint, when he hears some voices down below. The camera takes up his perspective. We look down on five men, Elmer, Horst Earhart, and Ralph Moody, and two extras. Let's go home and get a bite to eat and a little rest before we start out again. Don't reckon there'll be no school today. Nope. Ellie took to her bed. She was all busted up about Walt. She'll be back on the job tomorrow. She's going to need that $60 a month more than ever now. You ask me, she gave the sheriff a mighty sensible suggestion. Keep a watch on that house of his, and she said. That's where he'll go. Back to that old shack he's building. The men walk away, and we get a close-up shot of Clint. It's daytime again, and it's not raining, and we see the shadows of the slats that form the belfry on Clint's face as it finally sinks into him that Ellie is not for him. Not because she spurned him, but because, according to Ralph Moody's character, she called the house he's building a shack. Actually, we don't even know that Ellie called it a shack. It's just Ralph Moody's character that's calling it a shack. But Clint is not one for subtleties. You shouldn't have called that Ellie. You shouldn't have called it an old shack. It was going to be our house. I guess I was wrong about you, Ellie. You ain't a nice girl like I thought. You know better than that Walt Norton and I took care of him. If I had an arm, I'd have fenced you too while I was at it. Well, he wouldn't have, because as we know, Albert was there on the swing and stopped him. But now we also know that he wasn't planning to kill Ellie after she fainted. Still, now that she's insulted his house, as he says... And it ain't too late. That clank of the bell comes when he bumps into it, leaning down to pick up his hatchet. His jacket falls out, and he stuffs it back in again. But it's a very ominous moment. The clank of the bell as he reaches for that hatchet, almost a signal that his plans have changed. We dissolve to a long shot of the school and the belfry. And why are we out of the belfry? Because Clint is getting out of the belfry. It's nighttime again, and Clint enters the schoolhouse. We're already in there. The camera's already in there. Through a window. He searches all the students' desks until he finds some food in a bag. And then he finds an apple on a windowsill. He goes up to Ellie's desk, opens a book, and finds that she signed her name in the front, Ella Marsh. Now Clint was hoping to get some book learning from Ellie. Part of his fantasy of the house was that she would read stories to him after they were married. And seeing her name in this book seems like sort of a betrayal. So he angrily throws the book across the room. 
Then he picks up a piece of chalk and he writes on the blackboard, I'll get you too. I'll, I-L-L, no apostrophe, get, G-I-T, you too, T-O. And he underlines it. The camera moves in to give us a close-up of that writing on the blackboard. And then it dissolves to the next day. All the students in school problems in long division. We see seven of them apparently taking a test as Ellie walks down the aisle between them. She turns to write on the blackboard and she sees, I'll get you too. And it's apparently the first time she's seen this all day. But now that she's seen it, it gives her quite a turn. She erases it and she confronts the children. Who wrote that on the board? That was a mean, horrible thing to do. Which one of you is responsible? One of you boys did it, and I want him to be man enough to admit it. I'm waiting. Albert? No, ma'am. I never wrote it. Luke? No, Miss Marsh. Honest, I didn't. Please, ma'am. It was there when I came, and I was the first one in the room. And as the camera moves in on Ellie's face, as she realizes just what that means... Let's look at the three kids who actually have lines. Albert is played by David Saber, and he has a number of appearances as a child actor. His first appearance being as a little boy in the opening sketch of an episode of the Red Skelton Hour. He is in episodes of My Little Margie, The Loretta Young Show, The Jack Benny Program, and he was a regular butch on the TV series Mayor of the Town. But he only has seven credits after 1957, three of them as Toby in the Mr. Novak series. And his last credit is on Medical Center in 1975. I couldn't find most of these appearances, but I did find him in a tiny part as a teenager in the Perry Mason episode, The Case of the Counterfeit Crank. Thanks for the lift, boy. I was pretty well booped when you picked me up. No sweat at all, Pops. Glad to oblige. Thanks. I couldn't find anything else about David. Idlebirthdays.net says that he will be 60 in 2021, but that would mean that he was born five years after this episode. My guess is, if he's still with us, David Saber is about 75 years old, and this is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. It's also the only appearance for Rudy Lee, who plays Luke. His first appearance is in 1950, in a film called The Skipper Surprised His Wife. And he's in a number of films in the early 50s, including The Greatest Show on Earth, Son of Paleface, and Ma and Pa Kettle at Waikiki. Then he moves into television, eventually getting involved with Walt Disney to the extent that he is a regular on the series Annette, which I believe was actually a segment on the Mickey Mouse Club, in which he plays Steady Ware. Hi, Mike. Hi there, Steady. Oh, this and that, Mike. Annette McLeod. Hello, Annette. Hi, Mike. Say, you're new around here, aren't you? She's Mr. McLeod's niece. Oh, I, I didn't think I'd seen you around here before. Oh, I've only been here a few days. I'm taking her to Val's party. 
Aren't you going? Nope. I'll come. He wasn't invited. Oh, sorry. Say, how's about a couple of root beer floats? Okay. Two root beer floats, coming up. Oh, better make mine a chocolate mold and bear down on the chocolate. You better watch those calories, boy. I need energy. Why wasn't he invited to the party? He doesn't go with our crowd. Oh. I guess he could if he wanted to, but he's always so darn busy. Working and studying. Nobody's father on the ranch. He lives on a ranch? Yeah, out on Highway 26, right close to the Maypins. Jet Maypin? Do you know Jet? I met her the other day. She brought us some chickens and eggs. Yeah, she brings everybody chickens and eggs. <laughs> Ray old chicken and egg woman. <laughs> I liked her a lot. Will she be at the party? Jet? Heck no. You going to school here this fall? I start at Old South next Monday. Good deal. The old ivy-covered halls are right across the street. Yeah, and this is our official hangout. You're gonna like Old South. It's a mighty fine school and a nice bunch of kids. Ah, oh, who likes school? Now, don't be bitter. Steady tells me you're a senior. That's right. This is my last year. Hey, it's after 7. We better get moving. What's the bad news? 55 cents. 55 cents? How come? 20 cents for the root beer float, 35 for the malt. 35 cents for one measly malt? <laughs> They've gone up a nickel. Oh, for crying out loud, what are these guys trying to do? Bankrupt me? I seem to have forgotten my wallet. Okay, Steady. I'll put it on your account. Thanks, Mike. You're a real pal. I am a little short. Uh, okay, let's go. Have a nice time. I'm sorry you're not coming with us, Mike. So am I. You haven't got time to sit around here yapping. <laughs> Goodbye, Mike. Goodbye, Annette. And I hope to see you again. So do I. For Pete's sake, you're both going to the same school, aren't you? Come on! Unfortunately, Rudy's credits end in 1960. And then it appears that Rudy went bad. This is from parkcityhistory.org. In the fall of 1957, Rusty and the Falcon was filmed on the streets of Park City. The film starred a cute and quirky 12-year-old named Rudy Lee, born Rudolph Ernest Wanberg. That same year, Rudy was cast as Steady Ware. It seemed as if Rudy's career was taking off and nothing could steer him in the wrong direction. By the mid-1960s, Rudy was back in Park City and causing trouble. The Park Record newspaper devoted a whole article on his return, commenting that Rudy is back, but this time he is not roaming the hills of Summit County. Rudy is in jail. In March of 1965, Rudy and his partner in crime, Lee Oscar Stone, were arrested by Park City Police for breaking into a locked car at Treasure Mountains. After an apparent crime spree, breaking into multiple cars in the same parking lot, the two were finally caught. The young men were staying in a hotel in Heber City after making a spur-of-the-moment decision out of boredom to leave L.A. and drive to Utah. When they were unable to find work and food was getting low, they decided that stealing and selling the items they had pilfered would help them keep food in their bellies. Sheriff Ron Robinson told the park record that this was not Rudy's first run-in with the law. The California police had sent the Summit County Sheriff quite the list of incidents, including forgery, bad checks, car theft, and other small misdemeanors. Both he and Lee Stone had been paroled from Soledad Prison in California just six months prior. Both men were prosecuted in the state of Utah, even though they were violating their California parole. 
Per an article published in April 1965, they were charged with one to ten years and were being held in the Utah State Prison. They did not go quietly, though. Before their sentences were issued, Rudy and Lee tried to make a break for it. According to the park record, they succeeded in getting out of the inner cell but could not make it to the outside. The last word on Rudy was that the attractive and charming youngster can be out in a year if he behaves himself. Stone was given the same sentence. So was he out in a year? I don't know. I don't have any more information on him. But for what it's worth, the deadorkicking.com website says that Rudy is alive and kicking today. I know even less about Kathleen Hartnagel, who plays the schoolgirl who tells Ellie, Please, ma'am, it was there when I came, and I was the first one in the room. She was born in 1945, and she only has five credits on IMDb, of which this is the fourth. She, like Rudy, is in The Greatest Show on Earth. Then she's in an episode of Your Jeweler's Showcase, the film Scandal at Scorey, and an episode of Bachelor Father in 1958. But that appears to be it. She appears to be done at age 13, and I can't find out anything else about her. This is her only appearance of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, as it was Rudy's only appearance as well. It's recess now, and the kids are outside playing a game that the short story calls Andy Over, where they throw a ball back and forth over the roof of the school. We get a shot right behind and above the belfry so that we see Albert and Luke and some of the other kids framed within the framework of the belfry as Albert throws the ball and it hits the bell and lands in the belfry. It's a continuous shot, and they may have pulled some fancy 1956 special effects to drop that ball into the belfry, but I think they actually just told David, playing Albert, to throw it into the belfry, and he did. The shot switches to within the belfry, as Clint has been watching through one of the slats, and he picks up the ball. But what can he do with it? He can't throw it back. He's got to just leave it. Except that then... Now look what you went and done. you got to go up there and get it. I'll stop your yelling. I'll get it. Give me a boost. And Albert starts to climb up the roof toward the belfry. This is one of those moments where we don't know whose side we're on. We don't like Clint. He's a killer. And now he's threatening Ellie. But at the same time, since we're hanging out with him, we don't want him caught. So as Albert starts to climb up on the roof, we're as focused on that as Clint is. Is he going to get caught? And since we're as focused as he is, we're as surprised as he is when the bell starts ringing again. leans back as far as he can, covers his ears with his hands, and still has to recoil to keep from getting hit by that bell. In the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom point out, if you look carefully in all close-ups of Clint, the bell is close to his face, but in shots of the belfry, the bell is high above him. And that is unfortunately true. So recess is over, the kids are back at their desks, Ellie is sitting at her desk, the camera is behind her, and we can see by the clock on her desk that it is four o'clock. All right, children, you may all go home now. Put your books away and leave quietly. No loitering around the schoolyard and no shouting till you get past the side road. 
Have a nice weekend. See you Monday, Miss Marsh. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Miss Marsh. See you Monday. Bye. Yes, sir. Hey, look, wait for me. The kids all run off, and that's just what Clint has been waiting for. The last time we saw Albert ring the bell at the end of the school day, Clint's shadow appeared on the door just after Albert departed. This time, Clint's head pokes up out of the belfry. Once again, he's going to see Miss Ellie, but for a very different reason. In the schoolhouse, Ellie sits at her desk looks at the engagement ring on her finger and starts to cry. Up in the belfry. Clint starts to climb out. In fact, he's half out when he hears someone whistling my darling Clementine. get that same camera shot that we had before behind the belfry looking down towards the ground when Albert was climbing up on the roof. Actually when Clint first climbed up on the roof. Most likely they just put the camera in that spot and they filmed all these different scenes at the same time. This time it's the sheriff arriving and whistling and Clint is stuck halfway outside of the belfry in plain sight if the sheriff happened to look up. So now we're in another one of those moments where we're dreading both things. We don't want the sheriff to look up, but on the other hand, we don't want Clint to get away to kill Ellie. Clint climbs back into the belfry. He steadies the bell so it doesn't ring. And then he looks down, and we get another one of those great shots through that square hole. We see the top of the sheriff's head, actually his hat, as he touches the rope and steadies it. Miss Ellie. He is there to make sure that Ellie is safe, and it's a good thing he is. Ellie thinks that Clint is far away, but we, of course, know that he's not. He also wants to know about the writing that he heard was on the blackboard this morning. Young Albert Grinstead told me there was some writing on the blackboard this morning. Was there, Miss Ellie? Some silly scrawl. I'm sure when the children put it there. Like, look at it all the same. Well, I rubbed it off. It was just a prank. One of the boys. Well, if you say so. Ready? We move up into the belfry with Clint again, and he looks through one of those slats, the light illuminating his eyes, and we see the point of view shot of the sheriff and Miss Ellie walking away from the schoolhouse. You wait, Ellie. I'll get you. You just wait. Next week, nobody will come to walk you home. It's working out real nice, ain't it? I got two days to catch up on my sleep. Then it'll be Monday. You won't be so pretty by then. By the time they find you, I'll be long gone, hard to find. And as Clint settles in, he starts to suck his thumb again. So what's up with that? It appears that the idea is to show us that he has the mind of a child. And I'd be interested to know whose idea that was, because I think it's a mistake. In the short story, Clint is quite smart, and that makes him more sinister. 
I think this is an attempt to make Clint more sympathetic. He is, after all, not responsible for his actions. He's like a child. But even if you want to make him childlike, we already have that idea. From the way he petulantly struck out at Walt, the way he thinks he can still marry Ellie until he thinks that she's criticized his house, and even the way his monologues are written. So to me, the thumb-sucking is just overkill. We have a nice mixture here of suspense and claustrophobia, but when Clint does things like suck his thumb, it just takes us out of it. It's so over the top, it just becomes grotesque, which is maybe the idea all along. Clint thinks he has two days to rest up, but he doesn't reckon on Albert and Luke showing up on Saturday to try to get that ball out of the belfry. Albert climbs up on the roof. We get the same angle that we've gotten before, just behind the belfry, watching Albert make his way. We can just barely see the top of Clint's head from our perch behind the belfry. Now, last time, the bell rang to end recess, but this time there's no school, and Albert is getting closer and closer to the belfry. Clint picks up the ball, again as if wondering that maybe he should toss it over the side, but that, of course, would give him away. Instead, he puts down the ball, and he picks up the hatchet. So this is the epitome of our conflicted interest. Do we want Clint to get caught? No, we don't want Albert to find him. But now we really don't want Albert to find him, because if he does, Clint might kill him. We are both protective of Clint and protective of Albert. And it seems like something's going to give. But then the sheriff shows up. Hey! Get out from there. What do you want to do, Paul? Break your neck? We lost the ball up there. Well, it's going to stay there. Now, come on, son. Get out from there. And Albert climbs down, saving Clint and himself in the process. The sheriff has Elmer with him, and they enter the schoolhouse. We get another shot up above from Clint's point of view, and they have a conversation, which Clint can certainly hear. Sure wish Ellie hadn't rubbed that writing off. I'd know that scrawl of Clint Ringles anywhere. Hey, he's probably looking for food. Well, if he was here, he's gone now. He's had three nights to travel. He's probably clean out of the state by now. Yeah, sure hate to see that skunk get away, but sure looks like he's gone for good. Well, you look around. I'll get the place ready for church tomorrow. Hey, go ahead. And in frustration, the sheriff punches the rope, which swings back and forth down where he is and up where Clint is. Now, what was it Elmer said about getting the place ready for church tomorrow? That's where we're heading. We get, once again, a long shot of the building, and we hear hymns being sung inside. It's now Sunday, and the preacher is about to preach. I have taken my text from Numbers, chapter 35, verse 16. And if he smite him with an instrument of iron, so that he die, then he is a murderer. The murderer must surely be put to death. We have all been saddened by the untimely passing of our good friend and neighbor, Walter Norton. How many of us have asked ourselves, why did this happen? Why does a good man die in the prime of life and a murderer go free? But is the murderer free? Thou shalt not kill. He that killeth by the sword must be killed by the sword.
Or perhaps we should say in this context, the belfry giveth and the belfry taketh away. The preacher is Jim Hayward. He was born Herbert James Hayward. And MaverickTrails.com says Jim Hayward started his acting career in film and television in 1949 and appeared in many bit parts until 1967. Actually, he also had a part as a bartender in the TV series Lancer in 1969. He is mentioned in MaverickTrails.com because he is in two Maverick episodes, once again as a bartender and as a miner. And he is in a lot of other westerns as well, such as Broken Arrow, Sugarfoot, Tales of Wells Fargo, Cheyenne, Zane Gray Theater, Bonanza, The Rifleman, The Virginian, Wagon Train, and The Big Valley. But he's also in episodes of The Beverly Hillbillies, I Love Lucy, and The Adventures of Superman. Howdy, I'm looking for Mr. White. This is Mr. White. I'm a busy man, what is it? Well, I hate to bother you, but something happened and I got to thinking. You got to thinking what? Well, about the young man up in the cabin. You mean Chris? Uh, that's him, yeah. What about him? Well, if you folks are busy, no, I... No, 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 please, please. Well, you see, I, I, I'm positive that he didn't leave no urgent letter like he told me when I went by the cabin a couple of hours ago. So I figured... You mean you actually saw Chris in that cabin two hours ago? That's what I said, yeah. Well, that's impossible. You couldn't have. But I did, ma'am, yeah. How'd he get back there? Kent! Kent! Get me the police and make it quick. Yes. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Jim Hayward died in 1981 at the age of 80. Now, as the preacher gives his sermon, we get a shot of the congregation. They're all sitting in those desks built for kids, and every desk is full. The sheriff is up front. Ellie is there. So is Elmer. So is the character played by Ralph Moody. The rest are extras, uncredited, and unknown, except for one. Don Ames is in there. Remember Don? He was the guy wandering around in the party in episode 30, Never Again. IMDb had him listed for that one, and for his next one, The Legacy, episode 35. But they missed him here. Now, as the preacher gives his sermon, we get some close-ups of Clint. And when the preacher says, Thou shalt not kill... It seems at first like maybe Clint is tormented by that, but it turns out he's not. He that killeth by the sword must be killed by the sword. You gotta catch me first, and you ain't gonna. <laughs> the rain comes down again as the service continues with the parishioners singing yet another hymn. One of the extras, while singing, looks right in the camera the whole time. Clint is looking pretty uncomfortable up there in the belfry. It's gotten a little cold. He's covering up with his jacket. And he's getting sleepy. The sound of the rain and the sound of the hymn is putting him to sleep. 
so he doesn't even really notice when the preacher comes out with an announcement that is interrupted by someone coughing so that Clint doesn't hear what it is. Brothers and sisters, at 3 o'clock this afternoon, there will be a service for Walden North. I want you all to try and be there. But it can be heard well enough to know that he is announcing a funeral service for Walt at 3 p.m. Nothing to worry about now. No more meetings, no more ringing a bell, no more kids. Tomorrow I'll get Ellie and then I'll light out of here. I gotta get some sleep. I gotta get ready to move. He closes his eyes and he sucks his thumb again as we crossfade to a high shot, a belfry level shot, as it were, in the cemetery for Walt's funeral service. We get just a snatch of that service, then we get back to the belfry where Clint is sleeping soundly. But down below, Elmer arrives and walks inside the schoolhouse. Forlornly, he grabs the rope and he rings the bell in honor of Walt, which wakes Clint up and surprises him so that he screams. Hearing this, Elmer runs outside, looks up at the belfry, looks back towards the graveyard. He has pieced it together, and he runs back inside again to ring the bell to summon the others. And the episode ends with the reverse of the way it began. We started with a shot of the belfry, the bell ringing, and panned down to the entrance of the schoolhouse with a group of kids running out. Now, we have a single adult, Elmer, running in. And we start at the entrance to the schoolhouse. And as we hear the bell ringing, it pans up to the belfry, where we see the bell, and it fades to black. The story is much the same as the episode, except, as I said, Clint is smarter. And it begins with Clint trying to elude the posse in the forest during a rainstorm. The murder is shown in flashback later on. And he comes up with an ingenious plan. He climbs up into a tree, and he lets the posse pass by beneath him. And then, as Elston writes, Before they had gone far, Ringle slid to the ground. Then, in pursuance of his plan of escape, he followed directly in the wake of the posse. He made footprints of his own directly over those of nine men who were beating the bush for him. No one, he was sure, would be able to tell the tracks of nine from the tracks of ten. With this ruse, he hoped to defeat the eyes of men on the morrow, just as he was depending upon rain to cheat the hounds. Surely no one would expect him to trail directly in the wake of his pursuers. In the flashback, we learn first that Clint has killed Walt with an adze, which is, according to Google's dictionary, a tool similar to an axe with an arched blade at right angles to the handle used for cutting or shaping large pieces of wood, and that he is very definitely planning to kill Ellie after he has killed Walt. 
She was, thought Ringel, the only witness. He was furious at her, as well as at Norton. Insane with rage, he picked up the ads and turned murderously toward the swooning girl. A scream from the edge of the woods saved her. As in the episode, he hides in the belfry. Every inch of the ridge would be searched, except directly under the bell that had sounded the alarm of his crime. And he goes through some indecision as to whether he should protect the bell or not. Whoever finds him, report here, yelled the sheriff, then ring the bell and call everybody else in. For a moment, Ringel thought he'd better take his coat out of the bell, lest someone try to ring it. A vain try to ring the bell would expose him. On the other hand, the bell was only to be rung in announcement of the capture. Since they could not capture him without first coming to the belfry, why should he remove his coat? So he left it there, a safeguard against the ever-present danger of jostling the bell. Hunger now began to assail him. There was no help for it. Today he must fast. Tonight he could descend in the dark and forage for food. There was, he knew, a waste can just back of the school where the children discarded scraps of lunch. And these posse men would no doubt be throwing away scraps. Ringel could descend only for a minute each of the next three nights and salvage these crumbs of food. Then, in each instance, he would immediately climb back to the belfry. For his plan was to hide here four days. By then, the hue and cry would have burned itself out. By then, every deserted farm in this and adjoining counties would have been searched. Once searched, they would not be searched again. Ringel could, after the passing of four days, prowl from one deserted farm to another and in time get safely away. So he sneaks down and he eats from the scraps and he drinks from the school well. He doesn't go inside the school. He doesn't write, I'll get you too, on the blackboard, which, let's face it, reveals to the posse and to the sheriff that he's still somewhere nearby. He has a moment of panic when Ellie tries to ring the bell and he still has his coat in it. Luckily, he couldn't sleep. Luckily, the devils danced on his nerves and he opened his eyes. For doing so, he was just in time to see the bell moving. It swayed, but did not ring. In a panic, he snatched the coat from the bell. Then it peeled tumultuously. For a minute of agony, Ringel was afraid that Ella Marsh might realize that she had pulled the rope two full strokes without getting a response from the bell, but evidently not, for nothing unusual happened. The children marched in and lessons began. And then there's the preacher's announcement during the services. There was another hymn, then just before the benediction came an announcement from the pulpit. Brothers and sisters, at three o'clock this afternoon, there will be... Someone in the congregation coughed, and Ringel failed to catch the final phrases of the announcement. Here is what Jack Seabrook at barebonesez.blogspot.com says about the story. The Belfry is a beautifully written tale of suspense. It begins cinematically, with Ringel hiding among the post oaks as rain pours and lightning flashes. Elston's descriptions of events contrasts with the dialogue of the characters, who speak like hillbillies. The author's words give these common country folk a nobility that their own expressions lack. The murder is sudden and brutal as Ringel throws his adze at Norton's head. The story is almost biblical in tone, and Ringel resembles Cain, who killed and tried to hide. Elston creates real suspense when Ringel hides in the belfry and has a godlike perspective on the events below him. 
He must prevent the bell from ringing by mistake while allowing it to ring when the townsfolk wanted to do so. His nerves were like devils jumping on his brain, writes Elston, and the suspense is ratcheted up during the children's game of ball as the reader realizes that with every throw, the chance of the ball landing in the belfry increases. There is a great final paragraph. Men came on the run. Soon, on all sides, great gaunt post oaks with crooked arms and gnarled knuckles reached for the killer. The conclusion brings the story full circle by depicting the men of the town as trees of the sort that sheltered Ringel during the opening storm. The natural world that had provided protection has had enough and exacts vengeance on the man who threw the town out of balance with his rash act. The next film on our tour of 1920s Hitchcock is The Man from Home, for which Alfred was both title designer and art director. For this film, he scouted sites in France and Italy, and the film was made on location at those sites. The Man from Home, like most of the others we've talked about, was thought lost until it, like Three Live Ghosts, was shown at the British Silent Film Festival in 2015. This is from the same article I quoted before, entitled Missing Believed Garbled, Hitchcock's First Steps in Film. The Man from Home has been sitting on a shelf in the Eye Institute in Amsterdam, apparently undisturbed. Adapted from a play by Booth Tarkington, The Man from Home was directed by George Fitzmaurice, who befriended the young Hitchcock, and written by Ouida Berger, whom Hitchcock would have worked under. Little known now, Fitzmaurice and Berger, then married, were reasonably big names. The only problem from the lost Hitchcockian point of view is that none of Hitchcock's intertitles survive. The Dutch version contains about 160 titles, none of them, as Hitchcock claimed his were, illustrated. There's another tip-off that they're not Hitchcock's titles. They're in Dutch. This version of the film is now readily available online. I've watched it, but here's the problem. It's based on a play, so it's a very talky, silent film with lots of title cards. So unless you read Dutch, you're not going to get the specifics of what's going on. Still, here is the synopsis, which gives you all you need to know to follow the movie. Genevieve Granger Simpson Belle and heiress of her town of Kokomo, Indiana, is given a farewell party on the eve of her departure with her brother Horace to Italy. Her guardian, Daniel Forbes Pike, is downcast until he learns that Genevieve loves him, and then the farewell is less hard to bear. In Italy, Genevieve is dazzled by the attentions of Prince Cancillo, a member of one of the impoverished fragments of nobility that infest Italy. With his father's and sister's aid, he schemes to land the American heiress. Horace is also flattered by the attentions of the prince, and soon the sister is drawn into an engagement. She writes to Daniel, asking for a pittance of $50,000 for her dowry. Daniel realizes he is needed and starts post-haste to Europe. Prince Cancillo has had an affair with the flower girl Faustina, and she discovers his attentions to the American heiress. Her unsuspecting husband adores her, but she wants only her noble lover. One night, while the husband is gone, she invites the prince to her home and stabs him, and he kills her. Meanwhile, Daniel has arrived in Italy, 
helped the king of a neighboring principality who was traveling incognito with some motor trouble. And, not knowing he is consorting with royalty, is the king's guest at the hotel where his wards are staying. Genevieve takes Daniel's interference haughtily until the prince's true character is finally disclosed through the efforts of her guardian. She acknowledges her love for him, and they plan to return to the United States together. So, is it worth watching? Well, I think it is, if you can stand all the moments with the long title cards where you don't know what they're saying. In particular, there's some beautiful scenery that shows through even in the sepia tone of old silent films. At one point, there's a smoking volcano, which I suspect is Mount Vesuvius. According to what I've read, Vesuvius last erupted in 1944, so it's possible that it was smoking away in 1922. All right. To quote William Shatner again. So now, what do you think? Is this a good episode or a bad episode? We know where Jack Seabrook and the Pie Lady stand. And I have to say that I disagree with both of my illustrious fellow reviewers. Yes, the short story is better than the episode, but we've seen that a lot. Robert C. Dennis's teleplay does have its flaws, but he has succeeded in inserting plenty of suspense in this episode. As we pinball back and forth between feeling suspenseful about whether Clint might get caught and feeling suspenseful as to whether Clint might harm someone else and not get caught. So we're in a box, claustrophobically stuck in that belfry for a lot of the episode. Another point of contention here seems to be actor Jack Mullaney. Jack Seabrook thinks he's miscast in the role. But Lindsay D. at TheMotionPictures.net says, The real star of the show here is Jack Mullaney. Narration provides the viewer with a peek into the demented mind of Clint, with Mullaney relying on facial expression as the narration plays. His performance is great. This narration lets us know that Clint is a nutcase, but Mullaney's use of expression exaggerates his character's craziness even more and has a great effect on the viewer. And I can see both sides of that argument. Jack Mullaney is definitely an acquired taste. And it's easy for him to get under your skin. But this is a role that should get under your skin. There is a silliness factor to Jack Mullaney, which I think is what bothers Jack Seabrook. But on the other hand, I agree with Lindsay that his facial expressions are great, particularly during his internal monologues. He brings out the dullness of the character, the mule-headedness of the character. So I agree with both Jack Seabrook and Lindsay D. And it really does come down to whether Jack Mullaney is your cup of tea. The place where Jack Seabrook and I part company is with Herschel Doherty, whom Jack says must share blame for what he calls a subpar episode on nearly every count. Think what you will of the script or the acting here. To me, the directing is superb, filled with great shots and memorable perspectives. From Clint's shadow on the door, to him standing in the rain in his roofless house, to the lantern on the ground that illuminates his head, to his point-of-view shots, down into the schoolhouse from the belfry, and to the symmetry of the episode. Jack points out the poetry of the short story and its symmetry from beginning to end, with the use of the post-oaks, both real and metaphoric. Well, Herschel doesn't have the luxury 
of the language of the short story to set up his symmetry. Instead, he uses the belfry and the schoolhouse itself, bracketing the story with opposites. Instead of a group of children running out, you have one adult running in. Instead of panning down from the belfry, you pan up to the belfry. The thing that is constant is the ringing of the bell. In the beginning, it rings to release the children from their prison of school. In the end, it rings to send a murderer to prison. Now, having said all that, I love this episode all the way up to the very end. But then I don't really care for the way that Clint is caught. It's not a fault of the teleplay. It's the same in the short story. And like the problem with the internal monologues, I don't know how else you would resolve it. You have to have the Belfry be his undoing after having been his protector. That bell has to be ringing at the beginning and at the end. But it just doesn't work for me. So I'm sort of let down after enjoying all the rest of the episode. Two more things. First, a question. Does Clint die at the end? The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion thinks so. Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom write, But after being disturbed by classes, children playing, meetings, and services in the combined church and school, he finally gets killed by the giant bell above his head after Walt's funeral. And Jack Seabrook considers it a possibility. He writes... Worst of all is the show's conclusion, where a mourner comes back to ring the bell as Clint sleeps in the belfry. The bell rings and appears to bash Clint in the forehead. He lets out a terrible scream, and it is unclear whether the bell hit him and killed him or whether the shock merely scared him. At this point, the man below begins to ring the bell with vigor, and one is left with the unpleasant impression that it is repeatedly bashing Clint's skull. All of that is possible, but I don't think Clint is hit by the bell at all. It's just the angle, which is actually another great shot, that we get of the moment where we're behind the bell and the bell heads toward Clint's head. So I leave it up to you. The second thing, speaking of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, is that co-author Patrick Wickstrom sent me a note in which he said, Just remembered to point out how the plot resembles M. Night Shyamalan's film The Village, which is also my favorite film by him. I'd never thought of that before. While the plot of the village heads off in a totally different direction, it still deals with a group of isolated, low-tech people, amongst whom is a childlike man who stabs another man with a knife because he has just learned that that man is going to marry the woman that he is in love with. And also, as Patrick points out, Shyamalan does a cameo in his films as a tribute to Hitchcock, and Patrick believes his cameo in the village is his best. It's a really easy gig, Kevin. Maintain and protect the border. That's it. And now, here's Hitch. That was satisfying, wasn't it? It couldn't have happened to a nicer person. And speaking of nice people, before I return, we will have a few quips from television's most tolerant sponsor. Surprised you didn't die. Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1, The Adventures of Superman Season 2, The Twilight Zone, The Complete Season 3, and The Complete Season 5, Perry Mason Season 5, Volume 2, Strangers on a Train, and The Village are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Ron Howard clip, 
Teenagers from Outer Space, the clip from The DA's Man, the episode of Annette, and The Man from Home are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 34, The Hidden Thing, starring Biff McGuire and Robert H. Harris. When we return to Hitch, his back is to us, he has a pencil in hand, and he is drawing a mustache on the mugshot on the wanted poster. When he is done, he turns to face us, and he has the same mustache drawn on his upper lip. Good night.